turn now our attention to the reading of God's word from Micah chapter 5. Um, we're going to be looking at verses 5 through the end of the chapter, verse 15. If you, if you recall, we kind of jumped around a little bit uh, back just around Christmas time, just after Christmas time. We, we looked at uh, the first portion of chapter 5, which spoke especially about the coming of Christ, the one from Jerusalem. And we jumped back last week to, to, to get back uh, to cover the um, uh, latter half of chapter 4, which uh, I skipped. Um, and now we're back to chapter 5 again, look, looking at the latter half of this chapter. Micah, chapter 5, verses 5 through 15. This one will be our peace. When the Assyrians invade our land, when he tramples on our citizens, then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight leaders of men. They will shepherd the land of the Assyria with the sword, the land of Nimrod at its entrances, and he will deliver us from the Assyrians when he attacks our lands and when he tramples our territory. Then the remnant of Jacob will be among many peoples, like dew from the Lord, like showers on vegetation, which do not wait for man or delay for the sons of men. The remnant of Jacob will be among the nations, among the peoples, like a lion among the beasts of the forest, like a young lion among flocks of sheep, which if he passes through, tramples down and tears, and there is none to rescue. Your hand will be lifted up against your adversaries, and all your enemies will be cut off. It will be in that day, declares the Lord, that I will cut off your horses from among you and destroy your chariots. I will also cut off the cities of your land and tear down all your fortifications. I will cut off sorceries from your hand, and you will have fortune, you have fortune tellers no more. I will cut off your carved images and your sacred pillars from among you, so that you will no longer bow down to the work of your hands. And I will root out your ashrams from among you and destroy your cities. And I will execute vengeance in anger and wrath on the nations which have not obeyed. So ends the reading of God's word. As we begin meditating on this passage this evening, I ask you a question. What is it that stands in the way in your life from having from you having peace? What stands in the way of peace in your life? Is it the busyness of your, your work schedule? Is it difficulties in your relationships with others? Um, maybe there are people whom you encounter in your workplace or other, other places who are opposed to Christ and, and give you trouble because of your stand for being a believer. Maybe it's simply temptations that exist in the world. Or maybe the feeling that you are unable to deal with some of the curves that the life throws at you. Last week, or actually, excuse me, not last week, but um, a few weeks ago uh, when we looked at Micah 5, 1 through 5a, we considered how Bethlehem could have strength. And Bethlehem was this little obscure city from which the Messiah would come. And how it was that God could use this very unexceptional little tiny town that seems so insignificant for God's great purposes. And that passage concluded with the precious truth that this one from Bethlehem, the Messiah, 
Jesus, he is peace for those who place their text, uh, excuse me, their, their trust in him. As we look at our text this evening, uh, it expands on what it means that this one from Jerusalem, from, from, from uh, Bethlehem, this Messiah, this Christ, what does it mean that he is peace for his people? So we're going to be thinking about how God gives peace to his people, to you this evening. The manner in which Christ's peace comes to his people or, or his plan for peace, conveniently for this preacher this evening in this passage, uh, falls under three basic points that we can look at here. First, victory. A victory over the attacks of the enemy who seek to disrupt peace in the lives of God's people. Two, vivification. The Lord gives his people life and strength to overcome evil and therefore bring peace to, to lands and people that at one time knew no peace. And finally, vengeance. The Lord will purge his people from their, of their sin and destroy those opposed to the peace of God in his vengeance. And so once the enemy has been destroyed, sin is purged from the Lord's people and there remains, there remains nothing to disturb the peace and fellowship between God, uh, the Lord Jesus uh, and his people. Uh, therefore, this will begin a period of uninterrupted eternal peace uh, in the lives of God's people and joy to ensue. And so as one who trusts in Jesus, you too can enjoy the blessings of peace, uh, the peace of Christ, as it's described in this passage. As we look at this text, um, it, there's lots of things in it that, that don't maybe immediately resonate with us so, so quickly. Um, it's poetry that was written you know, close to 200, or somewhere around 200, 2,500 years ago and speaks of events that are quite distant to us. And yet, there are important messages for us that we can discern from it. As we look at this passage, verse 5 prophesies Assyria coming to the land of Judah. Uh, if you recall uh, from reading your readings in the Old Testament scriptures, uh, particularly 2 Kings 18 and 19, um, and you remember King Hezekiah, uh, maybe the words of this prophecy ring a bell. You remember about how it is that Assyria uh, did enter Israel and even come, came close to uh, overthrowing uh, Judah. The king of Assyria, Sennacherib, attacks and overcomes the Judean city, several Judean cities and presses towards Jerusalem itself. And the situation for Jerusalem looked pretty dire. The leader of Assyria, Assyrian army mocked the Jer people in Jerusalem and their God and saying that they were surrounded and not to try to trust in their God, Yahweh, because nobody could rescue them from their hands. Pointing all the other nations they had conquered, says, what God has been able to stop our army? However, Hezekiah humbles himself and prays to the Lord for deliverance. And the Lord responds by striking down the bulk of the Syrian army, and eventually Sennacherib himself, and saving Jerusalem from capture and rendering Assyria much, a much less significant threat to the future of Israel. Micah pro here prophesies of this victory that Jerusalem would have over Syria, yet if you look closely, 
there are some inconsistencies between what is prophesied here and uh, if we view it exclusively as just a prophecy of this event that would happen later in Israel's life. For one thing, it uses the word we, referring to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, as those who rise up against Assyria and defeat her. If you recall the story, uh, the Judeans, the Israelites, really can't do anything against this army. And ultimately, it's only through the God's sovereign hand uh, in, uh, directly inter in interceding in this particular case that uh, the, the Judeans, uh, the people in, in, people in Jerusalem, are saved. So they don't really, the, the people of, the, uh, of, of Judah or Israel do not really rise up against and defeat uh, Assyria. But in the case of Hezekiah, the Lord direct because the Lord directly intervenes and defeats Assyria. And I mentioned in a previous sermon how it is that that as you look at these prophecies uh, um, and that in Scripture, sometimes you 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 have to stand back and and recognize you're sort of talking about the future in, in, in the far distance, and you see these mountains. It's like mountains. You're 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 driving up towards the the, the Rocky Mountains from a distance. It's very there's a very flat plain, and when you see the, the Rocky Mountains in the distance, it almost seems like a wall that just sort of rises up out of the plain. And you see all these mountain peaks that might be close to one another. But once you get close, you realize that there are sometimes great distances between them. And so, again, we see something like that in this passage, that um, there are different things being prophesied here that are uh, quite a bit of distance apart, even though they have in some ways some relation to one another. In this text, you find that uh, uh, on the one hand, Assyria's downfall is prophesied, but Assyria stands for something bigger than itself, namely all of that which stands opposed to God and his kingdom. So while the downfall of Assyrian army in a vague way fulfills this passage, there is much more here for the people of God beyond this incident. That incident was sort of just a, a down payment for greater victories that God was going to win for his people in the future. If we go back to the, to the story of Sennacherib and Hezekiah, one of the clear messages of this passage was that the Lord fights for those who place their trust in him. And if the Lord is fighting for you, this means that you can never lose despite the fact that the odds might be stacked against you. Hezekiah was surrounded and hopelessly outnumbered, but he humbled himself before the Lord and prayed. And the Lord delivered him and defeated his enemies. And if this is true for Hezekiah, how much more is it true for you who stand on this side of the cross? The text speaks this way. When the Assyrians evade our land and marches <coughs> through our fortresses, we will raise against him seven shepherds, even eight leaders of men. Uh, we can also confess this with our own lips, understanding that Assyria is the kingdom of this world and our fortress is the kingdom of God. And this encouragement is to you that while we may need seven shepherds to defeat the enemy, we will all have eight in other words, the Lord will always give us more than what we need in order to beat his and our enemies, and we will always have victory over them. Our God is invincible, and we are his people, the citizens of his kingdom.
When you come to verse 6, there's some dispute over the proper translation of it. The, um, the ESV says that these shepherds will come and shepherd over the land of Assyria, but I think a better translation, uh, given the context, is in the King James translation, which paraphrases the word with the word wait. These shepherds will lay waste to Assyria, or, or literally they will lay waste Assyria with a sword in the land of Nimrod, or, or Babylon, at its entrances. The encouragement is to you that not only will Satan's kingdom, the kingdom of the world, be defeated, but the Lord's people will be given power to be his instruments to accomplish that goal. The latter part of this verse tells us that God himself will provide for the deliverance of his people. Maybe um, something you don't immediately see in the worldly sense, but we should live in confidence that ultimately the victory is ours. So the Lord will use his people to fend off the attacks of unbelieving, an unbelieving world, and when they stand firm in the truth and give them victory, and through that victory, they will have peace. So first, we are promised victory. Also, we are encouraged to believe that he will vivify us, verses 7 through 9. Now, when I was writing this this uh, outline, I didn't even know for sure that vivification was a word, but it is actually in the dictionary. Um, you can look it up. So verses 7 through 9, so not only will God's people have the Lord to defend them from evil uh, uh, and encroaching on the door, but positively, the Lord will enable his people to go on the offensive and take the gospel to the world and see it make progress. He will imbibe his people with life, and so he will vivify them, you know, vivid, you know, it means lively, or vi, you know, you have revive, right? It means made alive again. By the, the root word is means life, right? So to vivify is to make alive. It fits in my outline, even if it's a weird word. Anyway, um, so he will give them life, and he'll empower them to expand his kingdom throughout the world. The text speaks of the, the, the remnant of Jacob being... In the midst of many peoples in verse 7 and among the Gentiles in verse 8. This no doubt has some reference to the fact that in a future time the Jews would in fact be dispersed uh, amongst the nations. That came uh, to be during the, the Babylonian exile and later more fully during the times of the Greek, uh, Greece and Rome would have power in Palestine and the people of Israel be, would be scattered throughout the ancient world. These verses were no doubt given uh, to comfort and encourage uh, the faithful uh, Jewish people as they endured what no doubt was a very painful time in the history uh, of, of God's people. Being when they were exiled from their native homes, which they uh, were encouraged to believe were the promised land. For in these verses, it's clear that the Lord had a plan for this remnant scattered throughout the world and that they would at some point in the future rise up and be victorious in the situation in which God placed them. Now, it is true that Israel, uh, the Jewish people, did return from uh, the Babylonian exile, but it wasn't exactly a, a powerhouse country after that. It was still dominated by other countries. It wasn't completely free. It wasn't until the 1940s that, again, uh, Israel was established as an independent nation uh, that was sovereign over its own territory. 
Therefore, I think that when you look at this passage, you, you have to look behind uh, the, the physical, uh, uh, easy to see sort of fulfillment um, that maybe you might expect and see how the Lord used this dispersion of God's people uh, through the ancient world to, into many lands to accomplish uh, other things. Uh, when the apostles, for example, set out, first set out about the pr- business of preaching the gospel, and planting churches, what did they do? Well, they went to different cities, and, and uh, when the first place they went was the synagogue. Uh, there were people of God in these places uh, spread throughout the ancient Roman Empire. And many of them were devout believers in the God of Abraham. And so when they heard the message of the Messiah, they believed. And so... Some of the earliest churches then were established out of these Jewish believers who came uh, out, out of the synagogue and embraced their Messiah. Uh, certainly, this has to do in part with the fact that the gospel was to the Jew first. That's why they went to them first. At the same time, there was um, some uh, there was some strategic value in doing this because again, there were synagogues were all over the Roman Empire, and so churches were quickly established throughout it. With these Jewish churches established, the Gentiles then could be reached through these outposts that have been established, these missionary outposts that have established uh, I- throughout the, the Roman Empire. And of course, that's exactly what we see happening throughout uh, the early church, that these churches were first Jewish, they reached out to their Gentile compatriots, and quickly the, uh, the church grew, and soon Gentiles outnumbered Jewish Christians. Texts go on to say that the people of God in this situation will be unconquerable in two ways. One, in likening them to the dew, uh, dew which does not wait for a man or linger for mankind, or in other words, cannot be controlled by man. Also, likening them to a lion from whom no one can rescue. Speaking this way, the Lord reveals a kind of a twofold aspect to the the conquering which the people of God would perform in the power that God gave them. On the one hand, dew is refreshment to the earth, isn't it? Signifies how the people of God, the church, would serve to proclaim the gospel to the nations and draw them into the refreshment of salvation um, and the, the peace that it gives. Yet on the other hand, the proclamation of the gospel would also heap judgment upon those who heard it and flame them upon their way to eternal destruction, uh, tearing them to bits like a lion, as the the text describes. Uh, This this truth is described elsewhere in scriptures in 2 Corinthians 2, 14 through 16, which reads, But thanks be to God who always leads us in triumphal procession in Christ and through us spreads everywhere the fragrance of the knowledge of him. For we are to God in a the aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one, we are the smell of death. To the other, the fragrance of life. Encouragement from this passage is not all that different from the counsel of prophet Isaiah, who said in 55.11 of that, his book, that the word of the Lord will not go forth and return to him empty, but will accomplish all of what God pleases. Therefore, you're encouraged to, to believe that the Lord will use you to accomplish his purposes as you seek to tell others of Christ and 
live out your faith in the presence of unbelieving world. In one way or another, you will always triumph as you speak God's word clearly, or live out God's word even if uh, you don't speak it. Those who are God's elect will hear the word and respond and turn to Christ as the word of God has continued to be proclaimed to those who are saved. They will continue to grow in the knowledge of Christ and will be enabled more and more to vanquish the evil desires of the flesh. You will be like the like dew to those who need refreshment. Your words will vivify those who, um, because of your good words and deeds, be encouraged to believe in our Lord. On the other hand, the voice of God to, to the reprobate, the unbelieving, uh, those condemned to eternal destruction, the word of God will serve to bring them further into condemnation, uh, showing them their guilt and their unworthiness and proving uh, ultimately their deserving of God's eternal punishment. Therefore, brothers and sisters, you have every reason to believe that the Lord will stand with you as you seek to proclaim the gospel and live the word of God out in your life in the presence of the observing world. There's always temptations to say that, you know, I, I lack the resources or I lack the gifts, I lack the talents. And it's true that each of us have different gifts and we have different callings. And it's not everybody's job to be a, a missionary, per se. Um, but each of us in some ways do live out the gospel in front of the unbelieving world and can use whatever gifts that God has given us uh, to glorify his name in front of Unbelievers, And remembering at the same time that it is the Lord who empowers us, the Lord who give, gives gifts to us. And so we can be encouraged to believe that the same holy, powerful God that empowered the Israelites to stand firm in the face of the Babylonians also empowers you. Remember Jesus, who was from Bethlehem. It's only a lowly ca- carpenter, as the world estimates, He was little in estimation of the world, and yet in the power of Jehovah in which he stood, he he had been given power to shepherd his sheep. So there is a vivification and victory for the people of God that lead to peace. And finally, uh, vengeance in the last six verses, 10 to 15. The remainder of this text this evening speaks of the cutting off of that which prevents the peace of God's people. First, in cutting off what prevents peace within the people of God themselves. And secondly, the cutting off of those nations that have not heard the gospel and therefore oppose it and oppose the peace of God. So in a real sense, the Lord is executing his vengeance against that which opposes him and which is set against the peace of his people. First, the, the Lord speaks of cutting down and destroying the chariots, horses, cities, and strongholds. This is horses, uh, strongholds in verses 10 and 11. Uh, these, in this context, refer to the implements of war and things that which uh, God told the people of Israel not to trust in because they were unable to save them. Just as early in the book uh, of Micah in verses 4-3, there is a prophecy of the end of the need for these kinds of implements, these kinds of tools. 
the future, there will be peace. You won't need these kinds of tools to fight uh, against enemies because you will have peace. In this specific context where the Lord seems to be purging the land of things that the people will be tempted to trust besides the Lord. So on the one hand, there will be no longer be the, be the implement to conduct physical war, which prevents peace. But also, secondly, there is taken away that which prevents peace uh, with God, which is, is within man, especially idolatry, uh, uh, trust in the things which are not God and, and exalting them uh, to be like gods in the people's lives. The text proceeds in verses 12 to 14. This is made a bit more explicit. As the Lord announces that he will cut off um, sorcerers, witchcrafts, fortune tellers, carved images, sacred stones or pillars, and Asherah poles, which are a, a, a kind of idol to the goddess Asherah. In a day when uh, the concept of world peace is quite fashionable, uh, it's easy for you to get stuck thinking of peace as primarily in terms of the cessation of earthly wars. Now, certainly, uh, when we think of peace, that should be part of what it uh, is about. Uh, certainly, when it talks about the end of needs of the implements of war, that is uh, something which is referenced. Ultimately, the people of God will enjoy new heavens and new earth where there, is, there will no longer be any need of war, where there are no longer instruments of war for conducting. Verse 10 points us towards that day beyond history when it says, in that day. Yet we should not miss the fact that this is primarily idolatry which robs men of their peace, uh, not physical war. A war in this world is terrible. It's frightening. But it is really just an, a... a, a a manifestation of the sin which is always in people's hearts, whether or not people are fighting against each other with weapons. And that sin robs us of peace with God. So all this idolatry angers God and places man in an adversarial relationship with him. And, so, and when he seeks to seek satisfaction from that which is not God, he finds that it will not satisfy him. Uh, so he's not at peace with himself or with other people or with God. The often quoted saying of Augustine states so well, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. God is the only one big enough to satisfy the longings of the human heart. And therefore, without God, there is no peace in the soul. The Lord here promises to take those things, those idols, those things that tempt God's people to trust in other things away from the people of God. Same time, verse 15 reminds us that God is just and that the wages of sin is death. It incurs with the wrath and vengeance of God. And therefore, the nations and peoples who have not heard or believed the gospel or reject, maybe heard the gospel and reject it, Ultimately, they will not remain, and they will be destroyed. They will be placed under God's judgment. Reminds us that the purging of our sin does not come without a cost, without God's vengeance against sin being taken out. However, for those who seek and believe the true Lord, the vengeance of God is not taken out upon them themselves, but upon Christ. And the one from Bethlehem, on the 
when he suffered on the cross on behalf of his people, of whom Micah, of course, spoke earlier in this chapter. He would ultimately be cut off from God, from his heavenly father, in order to bear the vengeance of God's wrath against the sins of his people, against your sins. Cut off that your idolatry, your sin in your heart might be cut off. Cut off that you might find peace with God in the ocean of his love. It's often easy for us to want to talk a lot about God's love, and it's important to talk, talk about God's love. The, the Bible says God is love. And yet we don't really truly understand God's love until we also understand God's wrath, his, his vengeance against the sin, his vengeance and wrath against sin, because when we understand that, we understand what Jesus endured on our behalf. Sometimes you read through all these passages in the Old Testament scripture where it talks about judgment, judgment, judgment. It seems at times tiring to us. And these speak of God's holiness and his wrath against sin. And if you go through these passages and if they seem tiresome to you at times, always be remembering at the same time they speak of what, indirectly speak of what Jesus endures on our behalf. Because he loves us so much, he died for us and endured God's wrath to redeem us as his people. So if you desire to have peace in your life, the answer is to turn to Christ, to the Messiah, the one from Bethlehem, and turn away from the idols of this world, which are anything, which, which are anything in which you place your trust or for which you think you can derive pleasure apart from God. Anything you think can give you true happiness, satisfaction, peace, or joy. These things can provide satisfaction, victory, vivification, or the vengeance of God, and therefore they cannot give you true peace. Therefore, as we close, let's come full circle. If the Lord Jesus loves us enough to become a man, to suffer the wrath of God, God's vengeance for us, how much more certain it is that we can have the Lord as our God, and he will enable us to be victorious over our spiritual enemies as they seek to bring us down. How much more reason we have to think that the Lord will fill us with life, give us vivification, enable us to go into the world with his word and see the Lord's kingdom expanded. This is the reason for which Jesus died, and he did not die in vain. The Lord's vengeance and wrath were taken away for, of all God's people that he might establish a kingdom for himself, for his, his glory. That he would save for himself a people and build with them a special, unique relationship of love and joy and peace. And so the kingdom which we, to which we belong is a kingdom of peace, eternal peace, which all of those who trust in him shall have with certainty for all of eternity. Amen. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we, we confess oftentimes we are like these Israelites that there are all sorts of things uh, which we vainly trust in order to find peace in our lives or joy or happiness or satisfaction or wholeness or something of that nature. Lord, 
Uh, forgive us when we make idols of the things of this world. Father, take them away. Father, help us to know uh, that it is only through the one from Bethlehem that we can have true peace, that we can have true joy. And know that it is through, through him that we have the promise that you love us and you give us eternal life, true victory that lasts for all of eternity. Father, we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.